everybody. Um, morning, morning. Uh, yeah, you've got. Excuse my voice. We've got a bug running around our house this week, and uh, we're almost shaking it off. But it's it's still uh, <laughs> wreaking a bit of havoc. So we are currently busy with the life of Moses, and I don't know about you guys, but I've actually found it quite a very. It's been a fascinating journey up till now, right? Uh, if you just actually see what everything is unpacked in the life of Moses. And uh, let's just reflect, since we are dialogue, let's dialogue. Let's reflect on what are the lessons you've learned in the, couple, the last couple of weeks. Here's some food for thought, just as we delve into the text today. There's something that has really been, at least, I've been wondering about this uh, in this series is, so when Jesus comes and, and, and he's crucified, it's on the feast of Passover, right? Which is this uh, feast of, of being freed out of Egypt. Why didn't Jesus die on the Day of Atonement? If you, if you read the book of Leviticus, I think it's chapter 16, 17, in the middle of the book, you will find that the, the, the Day of Reconciliation, right, the the Day of Reconciliation, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, um, is at, at another stage. So if Jesus, is, and the reason I'm telling you this is because uh, I think we've got such an individualistic salvation perspective, but if, if, if my own salvation, my own individual salvation was the only thing going on, then Jesus would have probably died on the Day of Atonement, Right? That would have made more sense. It would. If it, it, it was, if it was only about my own salvation than just individual salvation. Because um, the, Yom Kippur was the day of salvation. That was the day when my, my, my relationship with God you know, was, be, was being restored. Um, but, but that's not the day that Jesus dies. He di- dies on this on this on this um, redemption, feast of redemption, this, this feast of, of, of being freed into a new life. So there's a whole theme of life uh, in, in its fullness that we should see uh, as we uh, journey through this thing. And our text is also speaking to that today. So re- read with me today. I'm reading out of Exodus 32. It's the... It's about the golden calf. Now, most of us know this story. Um, and this is probably the, the part in the Old Testament. I think if you could describe a low point in the Old Testament, you know, uh, where, where Israel really hits a low, this is it. Um, this, the, they, they probably can't go lower than this in the whole of the Old Testament. So let's read together. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, "Um, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up and out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all of the people took off the rings of gold 
that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it in a, craving, in a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down and, and to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make them a great nation, that, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with mighty, a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised. I will give your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tables of testimony in his hands, tablets that were written on both sides. On the front, on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It's not the sound of a victory or the sound of cry or defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground, to it, to it, and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn, Lord burn hot. You know the people, and they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what he has become of him. So I said to them, Let any of who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in a fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord of God of Israel, Put your sword on each side of you 
and go and fro from the gate, goat gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day they and that day about three thousand men of people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son, of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now you will, if you will forgive them this sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I, sh- I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Okay, so there is so many questions, <laughs> you know, that goes around in my head at least when I read these chapters. And I, I won't blame you if there's also like 10,000 questions going around in your heads like the Levites just slaying 3,000 people, you know, um, at the end, the end. And then also a plague, you know. um, So the whole story here is a bit bizarre. But let's delve into it and see what we can uncover and at least some of the questions we can answer. So it might not seem like it, but um, this text actually is about living a fulfilled life. Uh, this text is about living a fulfilled life. And, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll get to that in a bit, and then you'll see why I say that. It's, but before I get there, it's, it's quite interesting. I don't know, who of you guys have heard about a psychologist by the name of Viktor Frankl? There's a couple of hands here. So Viktor Frankl was a, a Jewish um, psychologist. He uh, was in the concentration camps in, 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 on the Holocaust uh, in the Second World War. Uh, and th- a very interesting thing happened to him. When he was thrown into the concentration camps, uh, Victor saw that some of the guys who came into the concentration camps um, who were stronger in the beginning actually didn't make it. And he was baffled by this. Why would some of the people who was actually weaker in the beginning, they would make it through the concentration camps uh, of Hitler, but the other guys didn't? And, and he, so he started his research, and he actually published uh, those research in a very small book. It's now become a classic. The book's, the book's name is Man's Search for Meaning. Have you, have you, some of you read that book? It's a brilliant little book. You should re- I think everybody should read that book. Um, but here's the thing that Viktor Frankl found. He said, man's biggest need is to, is to live a meaningful life. 
He says man has an inherent need to live a meaningful life. And the reason the guys, some of the guys made it through the concentration camps was that they actually, they um, could tap into a deep sense of meaning and that, you know, helped them go through. Uh, and what's also interesting is Viktor Frankl, when he still lived, um, he lived in the heyday of a guy named Sigmund and Freud. Uh, if some of you guys have heard about this guy. But this guy said, listen, you're man's greatest aim is to live for pleasure. That's what Sigmund and Freud argument. Uh, he said, man just wants to live for pleasure. And Viktor Frankl actually um, challenged Sigmund and Freud quite uh, uh, bluntly. And he said, no, 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 no. Man is distracted by pleasure when he, hasn't, he doesn't have a sense of meaning. Now, I'm going to say that again. He said, man is distracted by pleasure when he doesn't have a sense of meaning. Now, if that doesn't describe our culture, I'm not sure what does, right? Um, that describes the culture we live in. But here's the point. We all want to live a fulfilled life. I'm pretty sure everyone that's sitting here wants to live a fulfilled life. I know I do. You know? We all want to be happy. We all want to experience peace. We all want to experience joy on a deep sense and have a fulfilled life, right? Um, and, um, and like I said, that's what this text is about, is how do you actually obtain that life? So let's delve into it. I'm just going to... Uh, read again some of the passages. First, read with me verse 4 to and 5. And he received the gold from the hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, um, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall, shall be a feast to the Lord. So there's a, I'm, I'm going to just stop at a couple of passages. I think there's some really interesting things that we should note. The first thing we should note here is that Israel isn't just making any kind of idol. Israel is actually making an image of the God that brought them out of Egypt. Now that's quite interesting, right? Because that means they're not just there um, sitting and making, you know, just stuff up and saying, oh, we're making this image and this is the idol that we will worship. No, they're saying, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. And Aaron goes and says, um, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now, there's a very big lesson here. The first lesson we see here is that God, we need to worship God the way he wants us to worship him. Not the way we want to worship him. Because that's the first big thing they're doing wrong, right? They are worshiping God in the way that they want to. And I think a lot of, if we are truthful to ourselves, we all make the same mistake. On some level, right? We say we are followers of Jesus. We say we worship God. But we're actually just, we, we're doing all the, I almost want to say for, we're doing all the easy stuff. But the stuff that's not that easy, you know, we, we, we seem to push aside. 
Um, and I think we all do it. We make the same mistake. But then the story here goes on. Um, because we, if you read here from, uh, there's some beautiful things as well in the story. Verse 11, but Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abram, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. So here's also an interesting discussion because as soon as this happens, what does the Lord tell Moses? Um, you want, th- th- this, these people that you take, took out of Egypt, you know, I'm going to ruin them now. And then Moses has to intercede for his people, and he has to actually call God on his own promises, right? And, and that seems strange, because why does God need to be reminded of his own promises? But here's the beautiful thing in that part of the, the story is, Moses interceding there is exactly what God is doing with us. Jesus intercedes for us. At this moment, he is interceding for each one of us. The same thing that Moses is doing there, you know, is pointing to way, actually, to what Jesus is currently doing for each one of us. So even though we are just like the Israelites, we do the same stupid things. Jesus is interceding for us. And he's doing it on the grounds of his blood. He's doing it on the grounds of the price that he paid for us. And I think that is a very, very amazing part of the story. But then you continue, and then there's also a couple of bizarre things. The, one of the more bizarre things is when Moses confronts Aaron, and he says to him, Aaron, what did, what did these people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, they are so set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take, take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Bah! Um, I love the one Afrikaans vertaling. Uh, it says, it says, and... In Sidar Dosikov. Right? It's, it's like, uh, what would be surprise? Uh, Aaron is not taking any responsibility here. He's just like, um, Moses confronts and says, What did you let the, the, this, these guys do to you? And he's like, You know how evil they are, you know? And, and you know they just want to do stupid things. And they gave me the gold and I threw it in the fire and boom, here's the calf. And we couldn't help ourselves. Um, he's not taking one ounce of responsibility here. But then again, I wonder how many of us has been in that same seat. And it's when we're caught out, you know, it's when we're caught out that we know, okay, now I have to start blame shifting because I'm not ready to take the punishment for this. 
I have, I've been caught, and I've, but I'm not ready to take the punishment for this. And I think if we're really honest with ourselves, all of us has done that on more than one level in our lives. So in a certain sense, um, this story actually gives us a mirror, you know, just to look at ourselves. It doesn't give us binoculars, because binoculars you, 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 you use to look to something else. This story actually gives us a mirror to look at ourselves and to reflect on ourselves. And then we get to the point where I said, this story is actually about a bit living a fulfilled life. Because read with me verse 20. Here's a very interesting verse here. Um, so Moses comes down. He's broken the tablets. He says, he took the calf that they had made and burned it in the fire, ground, ground it to powder, and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. So he took the calf, uh, burned it in the fire, ground it to powder, scattered it in the water, and he forced the Israelites to drink it. Now, the obvious question is, yeah, why the heck? What's going on here? I mean, that is so mysterious and bizarre. And here's, the, here's what's going on. Moses is actually showing in that one sentence, you become what you worship. He forces the Israelites to drink the, 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 the calf, the dust of the calf, because you become what you worship. If, if, if you go look at the prophets and they reflect on this piece, right, you will, see, you will hear the following words. And, and the words will be, you've got, you've got eyes that, doesn't, that can't see, you've got ears that can't hear, you've got hard hearts and stiff necks. Have you heard those words before? Eyes that can't see, ears that can't hear. Hard hearts and stiff necks. The point is, you become like that calf. Because here's the thing. The big mistake Israel made here was to make an image of God. And what was the second commandment? You shall not make an image of me. Now, have you ever thought why God gave that command to us? He gave that command to us because he has already made an image of himself. He has already made an image of himself, and he's protecting the image. Read with me, and if we want to go read where's the image, we go to Genesis 1, right? Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock of all, over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the, of the sea. Over the birds of the heavens. And over every living thing that moves on earth. Okay now this, this is the point where it's really. At least for me it gets very interesting. So. God says we're not allowed to make an image because he has made an image. If you go look at the Hebrew, the words for image of God is um, Tselem Elohim. Tselem Elohim. Now, a Tselem was used in the ancient world for, uh, a, as a statue, right, for, for, for kings. So if you would go look, look at ancient Assyrian kings, 
they would have a telem of themselves like in every city that they owned. So you would walk to a, a city or a town and there would be a telem of the king and then you would know this is the, you know, this place belongs to this king. Um, and that telem would be a replica. It would look like. Because the telem, uh, the telem's uh, purpose was to represent the king. And when God creates humans, it's exactly with that purpose, to represent him. We are his telem, right? Telem Elohim. And um, to, we need to represent him, we need to reflect him. The problem is, when the fall happens, the telem gets broken. The image gets broken. Our humanity is actually broken. And because here's the thing, a telem always is, is, is dependent on the original. Right? It's like looking at yourself in a mirror. You're, you are also seeing your telem. But you, that's dependent on me, the original. And now they turn it back to the original, and the telem is actually now inverted on itself. And it gets all skewed, right? And that's why God said that you are not allowed to make a telem of him. And what's very interesting is in the Old Testament, the words, the words, telem Elohim, disappears. It disappears in the Old Testament, and it's, it, it gets replaced by, by the words for idol. Because we were created to worship. We are a telem. We were created to worship something. And, in the, it, and because we're not worshiping the creator, now we're grabbing to other things, right? We're grabbing to other things. And here's the thing. Most of those things are good things. Because a lot of people can now say, yeah, but we're not in the Old Testament. These guys, you know, they were so, um, they were so primitive. They worshipped statues and stuff like that. The statues, if you remember correctly, also with the gods of Egypt, were just some symbols to other things. It's actually other things, right? And today we also worship other things. I can give you a couple of examples. Success. We live in a culture who worships success. Family. You can worship your family. You know? Um, money. Money is one of them. You can even worship your own image. I don't know if you've realized it, but we live also in a culture that we're all obsessed with our image before other people. How we look, how we portray ourselves. Um, you can worship health. And, and listen closely to these things. They are all good things. Not one of the things I mentioned now is a bad thing. But it's once we actually make something good and we put it in the middle of our lives and we start living for that thing, then we have replaced and we are worshiping it. And here's the, but here's the big problem that the Old Testament shows us. And Paul actually gets to this in Romans 1 as well. The problem with worshiping idols or worshiping these things is that they cannot deliver on the promises they make. 
Because the thing is, when, when God created the, the original, there's three promises the original makes, right? He tells us our security, our meaning, and our joy, our happiness. We, we will find it in him. And, and idols do the same thing. Idols promise, promise to give us joy, meaning, security. But the, the, the argument that Paul makes is they don't exist. So they can't actually deliver on the promises. That's the irony. The other point is also, we see throughout the Old Testament that idols, or these idols that make these promises... If you give yourself over to them, they will destroy you. That's even maybe a bigger issue. All those idols, all those good things that we put in the middle, in the middle of our lives, if you give yourself over to them, they will destroy you. They will destroy relationships. They will destroy everything you have because they can't provide what they promise. Only the original came. And that's what Israel here is, is starting to figure out, right? Uh, or at least, hopefully, starting to figure out. Is you, if you put something in the place of where God should be, that thing destroys you. That thing does, does not give you fulfillment. It does not bring happiness. You become what you worship. Got eyes that can't see, ears that can't hear, hard hearts, stiff necks. But if that was where the story ended, it would have been a very sad ending. Luckily, there's good news. Because the language of Tselem Elohim actually comes back into, into the biblical story when Jesus arrives. Their language, image of God. It comes back when Jesus, because he is sent as the image of God. You can go read Hebrews 1, Colossians 1. I'm not going to read all those texts, but God sends Jesus as the image to restore our image. Um, it's quite interesting. Jesus, when, he's, when he is uh, doing his ministry, who of you know, what is his favorite title he used for himself? The Son of Man. It's the one title he uses for himself over and over and over again. That title is actually a title that comes from Daniel 7, from a, a, a godly messianic figure that is coming to restore the image of humanity. And here's the, here's the, the thing maybe that actually broke my brain. I don't know if it breaks your brain, but... Uh, when Jesus dies and he pays the price and, he, uh, and he, he's risen from the dead, he actually not just pays the price for us, um, for your sins, he's actually restoring your humanity again. We actually discover what it means to be human in Jesus again. And we discover what a fulfilled life means. We discover where do you get security, where do you get fulfillment, joy, happiness. It's all in him. That's why if you go read the Gospel of John, 
you will see in John 10, verse 10, Jesus says, I've come to give them life and life in full. He's not talking about one day in heaven. He's talking about right now. And it's, it's fascinating if you go study the gospel of John. John's gospel can just as well be named the gospel of life. F fulfilled life. Uh, read with me. I want to read you a couple of passages from John. And we'll, I'll end there. Um, we'll start at John 1. John 1, verse 1 to 3, and then verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Just verse 4. In Him was life, and the life was the light of the men. And then verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So the Greek word here that John uses is the word logos, logos. Now that was a fascinating word because ancient Greek philosophers used to use that same word to describe, um, now you guys have to help me with translation. But this is the spilpunt, um, uh, the center, the, the pivot. The, I think yeah, that's it, the pivot. The logos was the pivot of the whole universe. As the spilpunt was all dry. So ancient Greek philosophers, uh, uh, what they said is, there is a logos, and the whole universe pivots around this logos. And they would, the image they would use is they would take a stick. They would um, bend it, and they would put a piece of rope, yeah, and then they would spin it, right, and keep it in the middle. And then, there, obviously, there becomes a little bubble in the middle, and they would show you to the bubble and say, this is the logos, the logos. And the Greek philosophers would say, a fulfilled life, a full life, was spent in study of the logos. And John comes here, and he says, you know what, there is a logos, you're correct, but let me show you who is it. It's not something. It's someone. Because that Logos is Jesus Christ. The Logos became man and in him was life. And, we, and then that text goes and we see his life everywhere where he shows his glory, right? The Greek word they used is doxa. His, his doxa. And it's very interesting if you go read John in his gospel Everywhere that word doxa comes in, you see it's, it's, it has something to do with fullness of life. The next place you find doxa is in John 2. It's at the, the wedding where he does his first sign. And what is the sign? I mean, all of, I bet all of us can remember. It's, he turns uh, water into wine. But it's not one or two bottles of wine. It's like six 90-liter um, barrels we feel this like 540 liters of wine I mean that's a massive amount of wine that he's making right um, the reason is he's showing his doxa there where God is there's more than enough there's plenty 
If you go read, if you go further, John 11, once again, where he shows his doxa, it's when Lazarus is very sick and he's about to die and everybody's coming to call Jesus and says, you have to come. And he says, no, don't worry. I'm going to show my, the father's doxa here. And then Lazarus dies and Jesus goes and he resurrects him from the dead. That's how he shows his doxa. And the place where he shows his doxa the, probably the most is when he's hanging on the cross. When he's paying with his own life. And when he resurrects on that Sunday morning. He has come to give us life and life of full. He is the Tselem Elohim. And we, full, we find fulfillment in him. You will not find fulfillment in anything else. People have been trying to find fulfillment in a full life in tens of thousands of things for thousands of years. And the only place that you will find it is in Jesus Christ. That's the good news. But that's also the news of the story of the calf. Don't go running to calves. Don't go running to other idols. Go to the original. Because in him you will find security happiness, joy, and peace. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for bringing us this morning and help us to reflect just on your wonderful good news, Lord Jesus. You know we are weak and we keep on struggling and we struggle to, tr to trust but please help us, Lord. Help us to, to find our fulfillment in you. Because you're the, you, are, you are our only hope. You are our only comfort. And I ask you, please, to bless everyone here, to just experience your love and grace. And that we will also just share your joy with people around us in this week that we come. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.